Hello, welcome to The Home Game with me, Jean Johansson. In this series, I'll be delving into the lives of six intriguing women to talk love, life, family, career and football, as every guest I speak to is connected to the beautiful game. So welcome to the very beautiful Lisa Haig. Hi, Lisa. Hello, how are you, my darling? I'm good, how are you? I'm very excited to be on here with you today. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for doing this. This is my first episode and I'm so glad that I got you. I really, really wanted you to be the first amazing woman that I spoke to. And I'll start with reading a little bit of your CV. So I've got every job you've ever had since you were a kid. (laughs) You're not really. Um, It reads, movie producer, documentary maker, charity campaigner and mother of four. So my first question is, where the heck do you find the time? I don't know, because I still <laughs> managed to do the school drop-off and, and the pick-up as well. Um, I suppose everything that I've done, Jean, has been fairly flexible. The charity mm-hmm. work, I can be fairly flexible with, yeah. um, because all that's a voluntary basis, and that's quite sort of easy to, to drop in and drop out of through um, quieter times of the year, I suppose. The movie that I've just produced was more difficult because they are long days. That's that's really working, isn't it? Yeah. Work, work, work. Real job. So a real job. Um so that was harder and didn't do as many of the school drop offs and pickups and sort of left them to it for an hour to try and nip back to the kids. But it is difficult and I take my hat off to full time working mums mm-hmm. that's got kids because it is a juggling game. Yeah, we're kind of freelancers, aren't we? So we can dip in and out and I think we can get that balance a little bit better. But I want to talk about you being a movie producer. <laughs> Who, what, why, when, how, like, how did you get involved in producing a movie? I've got no idea how <laughs> it even landed on my table. I'm the girl that left school at 16, didn't do any further education, which I'm not saying is a good thing, but didn't do any further education with one C, four Ds, four E's and an F. And then... And they're making a movie that's done incredibly well, and it's really good. I'll give myself a little pat on the back. It's a good, yeah, it's a good do movie. That. I mean, it's really impressively set. Who who asked you? Who else were the producers on this movie? So uh, the director was Paul Wilson. So mm-hmm. he's more well known in Scotland for doing the Real Hustle. I think he did about eleven series. Right. And it was a mutual friend of ours a couple of years ago, Gianni Capaldi, the actor. Yes. Yes. Yep. And we were sat having a cup of tea in a soft play. And he said, guess what you're doing next week? And I said, what? And he went, you're going to go and be on a film as an extra for the day. Do you fancy it? And I said, yeah, why not? I thought, I quite like looking at the behind the scenes of things and Mm -hmm. learning new things. So I went along into Govan, freezing for the day, and did this film in set with literally one line I'd got to say, and that was it. Um, And I thought, wow acting's pretty cold in Glasgow <laughs> in January. Yes, it is. But um, but I met Paul and it all sort of came to life with Paul after he'd finished filming and he wanted to do a premiere for it. And I can put a premiere on with you can throw a the party. glitz and glam and the drinks and the red carpet and the media mm-hmm. and things. And it was after that we got together and he said, I'm looking for a producer. And I thought, I'm going to have to Google what does a producer do? Uh, that was going to be my next yeah. question. <laughs> I thought, is there an idiot's guide? One of those books? Yeah, you had to learn it in a day. How to be a producer. What does a producer do? Well, I sort of said, I've got no experience, Paul, so what is it that you want from me? And he sort of gave me a list of things and everything he said I knew I could do just with having contacts and things in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. So he needed to raise funds to get the film going. And I knew that there'd be people that would be interested in having the name in there and coming behind the scenes and sort of invest some money into the, the film. So I said, yeah, yeah, I can, I can sort that out. 
I need a restaurant, I need a flat, I need somebody to help me get in. Locations. Yeah, yeah. Loca- and it was all people that I'd supported along the way with the charity stuff. And I've not, we've been up in, in Glasgow for eight years and I've not really asked much of anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've done lots of favours and I just sort of picked the phone up and said, any chance you can help me out? I'm looking to film in your restaurant for five days straight. And they're like, yeah, no, but they just come in. So everything that Paul had got on his wish list that he wanted, down to the silliest of things, like a room full of books while I'm ambassador of Marie Curie. So tapped into them and everything he wanted, I got, I got for him. And we shot the film in a month and it did really well and got picked up by Raindance Film Festival and went over to America and it's it's done really well. Tell me the name of the movie. Isolani. Isolani. Give me a really quick sort of rundown. Give me a synopsis of what it's about. I don't know if I want to. I don't know if I want to spoil it. <laughs> well, my boy's in it as well. So producing aside, I think I was more proud, sat there at the cinema oh, watching Jack on the big screen. Mm-hmm. But a young girl, very young girl, uh, has got a little boy uh, with disabilities and she witnesses a murder and then gets herself in a little bit of bother um, with that because then... The bad guys are coming for her. Oh, so it's a thriller. It's a thriller. Okay, I'm going to. I'm definitely going to see it. You did invite me to the premiere, I but I couldn't come. But I heard it was amazing. A friend of mine that saw it said he was biting his nails down to the skin. So, and it where was she like that day, thriller. Jean? What is your reason for not turning up to my premiere? Oh, I think I was on holiday. Washing your hair. You're not going <laughs> to say I that. I was on holiday. You? I will see this movie. I'm a massive movie geek, so I'm really impressed. So tell me if you take on another movie. Was that a good experience for you? It was. It was hard work. I realised that I didn't know what hard work was till I took this on. I cried on day two of filming because I was just tired and I was cold. And um, Chris were like, Chris gave me the pep talk. You get yourself together. You know, this is going to be great. You're not filming for forever long. But we didn't have luxuries of trailers and things. So would I do another one? Maybe. Okay. Is it the thing that I'm destined to do? No. Okay. That's very honest of you to say that. It was a good experience, but you wouldn't be, you know, jumping to do it again too soon. However, do you know where I'm going when I leave you today? I'll go and tell to meet me. Paul Wilson. <laughs> he's so going to rope you into another movie. <laughs> he's going to show me a script. So I'm like, I'm all over it, Ducky. Tell me where to sign. I'm back in. So you're that kind of person. Do you like a challenge? Yeah, and I like change. Mm. I like challenge and change. So maybe I wouldn't do the next one that he put on me but in a couple of years if he said right this is what we're doing Lost in the Bahamas would maybe lure me in yeah just a bit of a nicer (laughs) warmer location that sounds good now you said at the beginning of this that you left school without any qualifications at 16 Mm. so take me back to 16 year old Lisa you're from Nottingham I think your accent is amazing (laughs) Um, who was Lisa back then? pretty similar to what Lisa is oh really? okay good a little bit wild the good fun, all my reports said exactly the same. Lisa is lovely. She's a popular member of the classroom, but she, um, you know, gets in everybody. Like, I'm disturbing everybody else. I'm getting in their way a little bit. But good fun, love her. Just wish she'd get her head down and do some work. Do you know that sounds eerily similar to my report <laughs> cards as well? Yeah, very similar. And it was when you were a teenager that you met your partner, Chris? I did. We went to school together. Lovely. So we actually went to the same nursery. I don't think we should trace our family tree back too far, to be fair. But no, we went to the same nursery, um, but we're there at different times. Chris is a couple of years older than me. And then we met at secondary school. Uh, Chris has got a twin brother and sister. And I was in his brother's class the whole way through school. Mm -hmm. So I met Chris when I was 12 and Chris was 14. Um, And I started sort of palling about with him a bit more when I was 14 and he was 16. 
I mean, that is just a, such a sweet love story. And Chris is, of course, Chris Commons, former Celtic player, now a pundit. Uh, so how long have you been together? Um, 70, I've been engaged to Chris for 17 years. We got engaged three months after we got together. <laughs> um, my April will not be following such suit. But yeah, we got engaged really quite quickly. How old were you when you got engaged? 17. 17. Yeah, That's 17. Young. Yeah. I, so I, I actually started sort of very loosely dating Chris, you know, having a little kiss in the schoolyard. A snog. A yeah. wee snog <laughs> um, at, at 14. And then he ditched me. Because he got oh, a, no. a contract at Stoke. Right, okay, so said, was that his first professional football contract? Yep, and he would travel from school to Stoke a lot, so he was away a lot, and he lived in digs. I think he lived in eight different digs through the time he was at Stoke. And he said, um, listen, I can't can't keep kissing you, ducky, because I've got to go and play <laughs> for Stoke, but I'm going to learn to drive, I'm going to get a car, and I'm going to come back for you. And true to that boy's words, he came back and then we carried on going out with each that other. That is such a lovely story. Yeah. But how was that for you? I mean, uh, when I met my boyfriend at the time who was playing for Rangers, I was 18. So I was an adult. I could kind of handle the fact that he was well known and that he played for this massive club. But at 17, how did you feel? Did you did you get it? Did you feel like he had a job that was going to attract a lot of attention to both of you? Not at all. I didn't realise... I'm not from a footballing uh, background family at all. My mm -hmm. dad still wouldn't know the difference between a rugby ball and a football. Right. So there was no football chat. So when Chris said, I'm going to go to play for Stoke City, I'd never heard of Stoke City as a football team for a start. Also, it weren't as, I mean, you're only going back shy of 20 years ago, but it was very different. It weren't I agree. the whole footballer's wife and yeah, footballers. Yeah, that came later, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. So Chris had signed a... a a contract that he was, you know, cleaning the first team lads' boots. It weren't going to be this, oh, I've dropped onto a good one here, he's going to be a footballer. I didn't actually realise he played, oh, hand on heart, I didn't realise he played in a proper stadium. And So he wasn't picking you up in a Rolls Royce, that wasn't <laughs> the car that he was coming back to get Chris, you. Chris came back for me in a Ford Puma. Oh, right, OK, so, yeah, I get it. He wasn't, on, he wasn't on hundreds of thousands of pounds at 17 years old, like a lot of young players are today, today. so it was a yeah. different time. So he was at Stoke. Are you living together at this point? So we moved in, I moved in with Chris and his mum, um, when he was at home, uh, and I moved in with them as I was just turning 18. And we thought that'd be quite sensible to do, live together at his mum's and just have that bit of supervision over us so mm -hmm. that, you know, his mum would be around. Keep an eye on you both. Keep an eye on us and cook for us, you know, yeah. you know which side your bread's buttered. Um, our families only lived 10 streets away from each other, so we were still in the same town. So my mum was happy enough yeah. to a degree that I was going. She didn't really want me to leave, but... Um, and we did that for a year and then we bought um, an apartment, just a two-bedroomed apartment together mm -hmm. in Chesterfield. So 20 minutes down the road from where we stayed and we and we lived there for a couple of years. Just enjoying being young and in love, I guess. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was lovely. They were sort of good days there because, mm. you know, it's all right earning the big money and, and there's lots of luxuries that come with it. But there's something quite nice about Chris earning £500 a week and living in our two-bedroomed apartment and... One in-goings and one out-goings and two cars and an Asda shop. Everything's just much more simple. So you're both sort of young, in love, having a lovely life. And uh, at 22, you fall pregnant. I did. Yeah, we 
we'd sort of got bored of each other by that point. We, <laughs> we needed we to like, add someone else into I, the mix. I, I swear we were sat on holiday in the Maldives. We'd gone away for two weeks. Oh, and we were going to leave early. I mean, now... Why on earth would this... you leave the Maldives early? Come on, Lisa. Because we were like... Well, we've done this for a week now. What else will we do? And we were just stuck on this island together and we'd done loads of holidays <laughs> together, you know, two, three holidays a year. And we just thought we really are ready. We really right. are ready to mm-hmm. have a baby. And I've got a, a condition called endometriosis. And it meant that maybe, <laughs> which wasn't the case, maybe I would struggle to get pregnant. I'm sure Chris thinks now that I absolutely fish hooked him in with that story because the first month of trying, we got pregnant. So it was amazing for me. It was such a relief. Joyful. I thought that maybe, as a woman, worst case scenario, I'm never going to be able to have children. Yeah. And um, first month of trying, and subsequently the first month of trying for the rest of my children, I've got caught the first month. It's good swimmers, Jean. There I'll you go. Okay, yeah, we'll put that down to Chris. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, your first baby, how was your pregnancy? Pregnancy was lovely. I was so excited. Found out that we were having a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, I picked the name Grace. And Chris, wanting to have the stamp on everything, said, (laughs) if I pick a name that you love more than Grace, will you change your mind? And I went, yeah, definitely, but you won't. I love the name Grace. And um, a few months before uh, my due date, he came up with the name Lola. And I thought, you git. I loved it. Oh, good. I says, right, well, that's it then. She's going to be Lola Grace Commons. And um, I had a lovely pregnancy. Work was great. I was working full time. Um... Friends did me a lovely baby shower and I had a lovely, happy, healthy pregnancy until the very, very end when, unfortunately, I went for a scan when I was nine months pregnant. Um, told Chris I didn't need him to come to this scan with me because it was just precautionary. She would not grown mm-hmm. during that last two weeks. And um, I went into the hospital and I got told that she would not got a heartbeat. Oh, God. So I, can't, I, I just can't imagine. Yeah, absolutely floored us. Chris played for Nottingham Forest at the time and I rang him straight away from the hospital once I'd found out in complete shock. And um, he came down from the forest training ground, which luckily is only sort of 15 minutes away, so we were there quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we just, we couldn't believe it. We, we didn't know any other family, celebrity, somebody that we'd seen on the telly, a documentary, nothing of anybody that had lost a baby at nine mm-hmm. months pregnant. It's got to be the worst thing in the world. And you were so young and as you, you didn't know anybody who had been through it. Can you remember your emotions and feelings at that time? I can. I, I just kept saying, oh, God, what am I going to say to everybody? I felt really embarrassed, oh, really that's, embarrassed that's strange, to start with. That, that embarrassment would yeah. be something that you would feel. Yeah, I just sat there with, like, the biggest tummy oh. and thinking, I need to just get home because when I get home, life will be normal again. And I got this... I couldn't wait for the next stage, just just get me home. And I didn't realise that um, there's not a magic way of getting a baby out when your baby's died. I thought that I'd get put to sleep. Bearing in mind, Jean, 22, didn't know anything about this. And and that's not the case, you know, for the majority just going to go through a normal labour. And I did, they told me I'd got to carry her for two days. So I found out on the Friday. I mean, how does that feel when you're carrying around a baby that you know is not living? Did you want to keep her longer or did you want her I to come I wanted them to take me in there and then and for yeah. it to be over with because mm. I didn't want to bump into anybody. I, I see a pregnant lady now and I give her the lovely smiley face mm. and I'm tempted to say, oh, you know, when you get into a conversation and I, I didn't see any family, any friends, 
for, in my head, I'd, I'd got to carry her for two days, but I got home in the car with Chris and I said, you need to take me back in. I thought my mental health here is at risk. I'm really, I'm really gonna struggle. And I went back down and they gave me a, a tablet to take, but they said, you'll not be giving birth until, you know, sort of tomorrow night. This is a slow process. But I actually went home and went into natural labour. So I went into natural labour that night and it would have been the stress rather than the tablet. The tablet wouldn't have worked that quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, And that process of it was easier. I gave birth just with gas and air and six hour labour and she came out and the room was extremely quiet and it was nothing like you'd ever expect you know um and then you realize actually this is day one now it's not over because i've given birth this is day one of i'm going home with no baby today it's the day that your life's both of your lives changed forever i'm sure and defined the rest of your life you didn't know it then but that awful thing that happened that day will have defined who you both are now and how you live your lives and and the lives of your other children so tell me about moving on from that horrific event so I had a year of visiting my friend in Dubai and grieving and I really, I gave myself five months off work mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, after sort of a year, I thought, right, I'm I'm ready. I'd, I'd, I would like to try for another baby. And That's brave. Place, yeah. that, were you advised to do that or the, did you feel like you wanted to um, get The consultant again? said to me, you are young and your body will have another baby straight mm-hmm. away and that's fine too but mentally it's a big deal to go through again so just make sure that your mind is ready and for me a year was I needed that year of course I think for some people it's not I do know people that's gone on to have babies really quickly after and that was the right decision for them mm-hmm. but for for us it was a year we really did grieve come to terms with it cried you know sort of sort of heads out and I wasn't scared to get pregnant again I was very very confident in the care that I would get from the hospital which it's always just been NHS care and I was really looked after and um, pregnant first month of trying <laughs> again again <laughs> and uh, I went on to have three babies in three years so Lola is 2008 mm-hmm. and then I've had April William and Jacks in 2010 11 and 12 very busy girl. It sounds <laughs> as if it was exactly the right thing for you to do. And what about Chris? Because men, we all know they process their emotions differently. I'm assuming he went back to training quite quickly, straight back into normal life, lots of fans watching him at the weekend. And did you, because you said you didn't know any other couples, you may have been a high profile couple that it had happened to. Did you um, feel like a lot of people knew? Do you feel you started a conversation about stillbirths and... It wouldn't. It was nothing in comparison to if it would have happened while we were up here. Okay. <clears throat> Bearing in mind, there was no Twitter, Instagram, Facebook that anybody was on, so it actually kept it really quiet, private, okay. private. Yeah. And I'm really pleased about that mm-hmm. because by the time we did talk about it publicly when we came to Scotland, and I got approached by a charity, I was really ready to give something back you had at that, that point. Time to process it all. And- um, but me and Chris sat down as a couple. We, we grieved very differently in our ways. Chris wanted to get straight back on a football pitch. And I think a lot of footballers um, handle, you know, they, they want to get straight back into into the job that they do where they can de-stress and, and do what they're supposed to be doing. Normality. Yeah. And the lads at work, when he first went back in, sort of said, sorry to hear about what's happened to you, baby Chris. 
and he'd be like, right, yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, it's sad what's happened. And then that was it. He was straight back on and he enjoyed the normality. I think if I'd gone straight back to work and it was that quick, I'd have gone, everybody's forgot what's happened and nobody's took it seriously. Yeah, we're but, just different. But, but we're different. And and I respected Chris's way of grieving mm-hmm. and he respected my way. But Chris actually went back to work between Lola dying and a funeral. He, he had a football game in between that. And I said to Chris, if you want to do it, you should do it. And he did and he, he played really well. And he, he that was his break. That was him just doing his own thing. It wasn't my way. I walked a lot. I turned into Forrest Gump and just walked in the morning till afternoon and just. But it is processed. good. It's good to hear that you grieve. We have to grieve. It's um, you have to go through that process in order to move on, don't you? It's um, people that move on too fast, it often ends badly. So it sounds as if you took enough time, and as if sounds to me as if having another baby was the best thing that you could do. It was lovely. It was, and I was so pleased that I'd had a girl straight. Although we got told April was a boy at one scan, and I thought, oh, all right, okay, it didn't go quite the way. But when me and Chris got together, we said we wanted four children, two girls and two boys. Mm-hmm. And even though one of them isn't here now, I still feel exceptionally lucky that I have had two girls and two boys. Yeah, that was your wish list. Yeah, yeah, and you got it. So Stoke, Nottingham. Where did Chris go after that? Because, of course, you know, when you write a footballer, you sometimes don't know how long you're going to be living, where you're going to be living next. So tell me about the move after Nottingham. So that was pretty much as we'd lost Lola towards the end of Chris playing at Nottingham Forest. Mm -hmm. And he moved to their rivals, which is Derby. Yeah. So he had other clubs that were interested, a couple of teams in London. And Derby was a close club to us. It's, you know, it's... It's our close. rivals, it's it, on geog- our doorstep. Geographically, it's close, yeah. Yes. Um, and one of the reasons that he did go there was it was better for us as a family because I could stay around my mum and dad and my sister and family. So that was one of the main reasons that Chris did stay local and go and play at Derby. And he was there a few years and did and did really well. We didn't need to move house, so very fortunate in that respect. Stoke, Nottingham Forest and Derby are all within an hour You are lucky, we yeah, live. you yeah. didn't have to move. Um, and were Der- Derby in the English Premiership at this point? Oh, they were... Oh, tell me you oh, know that, Lisa. <laughs> you claim... Play, like, left midfield or something, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, um, yes, I don't know. I don't Derby know what, are a big club. They're a big club. Yeah. Rams. And how Rams. And how did that how did that affect you? You know, he's, he sounds as if he's moving from bigger club to bigger club he's at Derby you're settled you're at your home is he becoming high profile by this point yeah he, he quickly became um a big success at Derby and he was playing really well and he, he did really well it's not it's still not like down there because it's not Man United you know it's not the big big clubs you're still sort of left alone a little bit down there but Chris is getting a name for himself and he's he's doing his stuff and he's doing well but I still had my normal nine-to-five job I worked as a sexual health advisor and a drug and substance misuse support worker Amazing. and I loved that job mm-hmm. um, but life was normal <clears throat> it's when we moved to Celtic that life wasn't normal anymore <laughs> right let's go there because let's I had a, I had a drink with you once and you claim <laughs> that you'd never heard of Celtic until Chris, I don't believe that you'd never heard of Celtic or Rangers until Chris moved there I don't believe you Right, so... We <laughs> but are... then again, you had no idea whether Derby were in the Championship <laughs> or Premiership, so maybe you just don't pay much attention to I that d- stuff. Well, this is it. My dad 
<laughs> I've got a really funny sort of Celtic Rangers story about my dad as well because you can see there that the apple didn't fall far from the tree. But I, I didn't really go and watch Chris loads when he's played for Stoke Nottingham Forest Derby. Why not? Because football didn't interest me. I didn't like football. I weren't bothered and that was a job. Chris was a footballer. Lovely, you go and play your football. I'm going to go and meet my friends on a Saturday or do what I want to do on a Saturday. Do you want me to come and watch you, Chris? No, I'm not that bothered. Then I won't go. That's well, fine. I have to ask then, do you regret that now? Because, you know, going and watching your man playing in a stadium with 60,000 fans, that stops. Do you not yeah. regret now that you you didn't you weren't there to see him play against Manchester United and I Chelsea? Did go to and that one. Oh, all right, I, I, the, I cherry picked the, <laughs> okay, the big funny ones. that yeah yeah. Yes. I d- I did go to some, but I didn't go as religiously as what I did when we moved to Celtic, um, because I I got bored watching football. I didn't like a lot of women. Our listeners are now turning off in their <laughs> droves, Lisa. I know. No, I hear you. I've yeah. known a lot of footballers' wives that never went to any any games or partners or. I I got really into football. I just loved watching my man on a Saturday. Loved it. You know, it was every second Saturday of my 20s was spent, you know, at Charlton Athletic or, you know, Rangers or Norwich. And, and I've become a fan of all the clubs as well. So yeah. I'm like a Hibs fan, Norwich, Johnston, Rangers, Malmo, you know, everywhere he's played, I've got real love for that club, really. So I'm, I'm surprised that you just didn't get... Um, didn't fall into all of that because it's such a huge part of your partner's life yeah but but no I'd I'd go along sometimes sometimes a friend would say shall we go and watch Chris today and I'd say yeah if you want <laughs> and we bomb <laughs> up in the car but it was it was it just Celtic. wasn't your thing Celtic is the only football club that I have ever supported and that I will ever support right so how did Celtic get into your blood then it just does I I, I don't know how any player's partner could come up here and it wouldn't get into your blood. Mm. I think we moved up when Chris Plate said, I've been asked to go up and have a medical with Celtic. I said, where does Celtic play? And he went, <laughs> Scotland. And I thought, oh, well, you play for Scotland. So I like Scotland. That's nice. I've been up once or twice. Mm-hmm. I've not seen him play a lot for Scotland. I'd... So I said, all right, okay. So I'm, I'm being flown up first thing in the morning. And he did. By this point, I am seven months pregnant with William. And I was like, oh, okay, so you'll go and get your medical. And he never came back. Lenny wanted him on that pitch the very next day, pretty that much. That happened to me. Jonathan left for uh, left for training with Rangers and then sort of phoned him and went, I'm going to Charlton for a, a medical. And I did say, where did Charlton play? Because I now didn't, know they, were, <laughs> I didn't know they were a London team. <laughs> and he never came home. Didn't he it, yeah. never came back to that house ever no. again. He hit the ground running. Started training and became a Charlton Athletic player. You know, he never came back to Scotland for about a year. So I don't think people realise how fast that happens. Fine for me, I sort of packed our suitcases and jumped on a flight down to London. But as you say, you were pregnant, you had your home. Yep. You know, you that, that would have been a big move for you. And by that time, we are in a big house at home. It's not the two-bedroom apartment anymore where you, you could fling a, a few things in. Yep. And I've got April that's uh, 13 months old. And I'm about to pop with William and then Chris has gone and left me with a full house to pack up. And I'm like trying to put in the sat-nav Celtic football club to get me up, to get me up the road. <laughs> now, this is where the sort of producer part of you comes in, because I'm guessing you had to pull some stuff together really quickly. <laughs> yeah, we, we did. I mean, this is probably why I fell in love with the club before 
I even sort of got involved with the club because they really did help us out. As soon as we got up there, they can appreciate that you need to be a happy family to have a happy footballer playing. So, yeah. so they did get a liaison to, you know, just sort us out with looking around some houses, finding out where the doctors is, getting us registered Practical and sort of having a, a network up there. But more than that, the supporters were... Sh- I'm very, very friendly and I'm not somebody that walks out of the ground with my head low and just gets to the car. Yeah, I'm some saying hello do. to everybody yeah. and I'm giving everyone a squeeze and I'm and I let the supporters catch me and they did catch me and they really looked after us. That's so nice to hear. Now it is nice when you leave the stadium and everybody's mm-hmm. high fiving you and, and want a selfie, <laughs> but there's times when that doesn't happen. There's times when you want to sit in that player's lounge just to let the crowds move away because <laughs> you've had a bad defeat. How do you deal with that side of it? Because people aren't loving you all the time. Um, I've never had a bad experience That's like good. that. We've never good. come out. Um, no, the Celtic fans really have been really very polite. The worst they're going to say is, what happened today, Chrissy boy? That's as worse as it's got. That's nice. And That's respectful. It, it, yeah, it is. And we've always, you know, I've taught the kids now. The kids are hardcore Celtic fans. I April. Know, I see is, that on your social media. Yeah, I think people must think I purposely just put my kids in a strip constantly and take a picture. <laughs> but the reality is they go to school in a strip if they could. So they are, you know, they have been used to going and watching their dad week yes. in, week out. Yes. The big Celtic fans. Um, but even being out and about in Glasgow, I mean, we know that the city is divided, you know, your side and my side, Jean. Yes. But we've never really had, I can't even say we've never really had, we've never had any abuse walking out and about like what some players have had. Mm. But I think that we've been well received in Scotland as a family. I think people have seen the amount of work that we do and that, you know, we're a a nice family together and Chris doesn't parade around Glasgow like a peacock whether he's been whether you know if he's won a game or lost a game you wouldn't see Chris out on the town he's never yeah. rubbing anybody's noses in it off the field is respectful yeah we worked that out that our husbands are quite similar quite quiet not yeah. going to be the loudest one in the dress room not going to be posting themselves being drunk on Twitter and I think fans kind of like that I have to say my experience has been quite similar to you I can have banter with Celtic fans and um, a good laugh with the Rangers fans so it's nice when you're you're not too polarising you kind of just get on with everyone because I I imagine it'd be quite stressful being fearful to go into the city centre after a game or so yeah I think you've played that one well but I, I can imagine I know why people like you um so I get that and tell me more about Celtic because when Chris came, Neil Lennon was the manager. Yeah. Did they have a good relationship? They did. Neil brought Chris up. Chris and Neil had played at Forest together. Mm-hmm. So they'd already got a relationship from before. Nice. They bought Chris for 300 grand. So they got him for, you know, a real bargain. And he came up and he did the biz. He, he, he worked hard and he, <clears throat> he, he did really, really well under Neil. And he loved it. And it's the happiest that I've seen him in his football career when he did come up to Celtic. And on and off the pitch as well because he saw how settled we all were as well as a family so um yeah neil neil loved him i'm glad that that the move was nice and that glasgow just fitted like a glove for you but happy times for chris when neil was there then managers change and that's always a really stressful time because you never know if the manager is going to like your hubby or your boyfriend you know they often want to come in and make changes so who was the manager after neil lennon i'm going to say that was 
Oh, I don't. Oh, there's no I point in to asking Ronnie you could be Ronnie Dyla. <laughs> yeah, I won't say there weren't anybody you in between that word. It was terrible. Ronnie. Yes, it would have been Ronnie Dyla, and Don't I do me. remember a little stushy between the two of them. <laughs> you, you know, you, now you know what I'm talking about. Don't I know you? the one because my blood ran cold right. while I was sat watching it at home. Tell me what happened because it's horrible when you see your partner, someone you love, losing it or oh, being yeah. upset or being angry. Yeah. So tell me what happened and tell me how you felt about it. Well, the ins and outs of it were that I think Chris felt he'd got more to give on that game. He wasn't happy to lose. He wasn't happy to draw. He was out there to win. I'm going to give this context because I know you're not into the details. Yeah, do that. (laughs) Or you you just don't know them. So Celtic are playing Molde, I believe, uh, in a big European game. European matches are quite important, Lisa, just to let you know. And Chris got substituted. Yes, he did. And he wasn't best pleased about it. Mm -hmm. So as he came off, it was pretty angry. And I watched this at home. I was I was working at the same time. I'm watching the game. And then my phone started going nuts. Ting, ting, ting. And I thought, oh, Chris must have scored. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. But what I will say, I mean, I looked and thought, wow, this is, you know, the, the cameras were on Chris. The cameras weren't on the game for a good 10 seconds. And mm. I could see that he was clearly upset by being substituted and you said yes that quiet guy so he he wasn't playing up for the camera oh no i'm sure he would have not wanted to be on camera at this point it was a side of chris that the celtic supporters had not seen before but it was a a passionate side to him it was a you know not kicking off and spitting the dummy out for the sake of it Mm. it was because he is so passionate he he wants to win and what i will say about chris is Whenever he gets, because this this story does come up often, <laughs> and the first thing that because people do come up and people say, Chris, that were really unprofessional, you know, and we read about people saying how unprofessional it was, and you get another group of fans that will say, how you felt is exactly how we felt, Chris, watching mm-hmm. the game. Yeah, and Chris's re- response is always the same, and he'll say it is, it was completely unprofessional of me to have acted that way and I'm disappointed in myself and for the supporters that watch me in acting that way. Right, that's his statement on no. Twitter. How did he really feel? <laughs> and honest to God, yes, he was so upset by being mm. subbed and it was passion that made him do that. But hand on heart, he did feel like that's not for everybody to see. It wasn't for everybody to see. It should have been kept yeah. in the dressing room and there should have been more respect there and he's the first one to say that so Fair yeah he did he did yep. come in and they were like because i stayed up I, I don't think they got in till i feel like it was very early hours of the morning oh, I've done and it i many stayed a time up. after an evening yeah. game they don't get into two or three in the morning yeah. and they're starving yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have something ready for them to eat so then you get all the gossip i feel like what you're making <laughs> for us chris when he'd got in but quite quickly it was like that's not the way that that should have gone Chris does appreciate as well that there's a very young audience that look up to Chris like what Chris did when he was a little lad playing football Mm. at at the stars and at their idols and he doesn't want kids to think that that is how you act he wants to be Mm. seen as a good role model and I agree with him with that I do think it's passion and I don't you know but I do agree with him that it it wasn't for that point at that that place and did that incident go on to sort of have an impact on the relationship with that particular manager well he played again the next game mm-hmm. Ronnie didn't play him I don't think that he did much 
with the club after that in, in total. But he did play the next game uh, and I think he did still have a few games under Ronnie, but it, it wasn't, I don't think he were Chris's cup of tea. Yeah, such, like I you don't say, think that's manager secret, comes yeah. in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think everyone thought he wouldn't play the next game and, and he pulled on his jersey and he, but he did the right thing. He publicly did mm-hmm. say he's sorry as well as, at this point, you know, I could say, if there was the truth side of it, I could say it because Chris is not a footballer anymore and it's not going to detriment <laughs> just, his career. And I could yeah. say, he did it because he was forced to say it, but he didn't. He did it no. for all the right reasons. Yeah. yeah, I can tell you're quite an honest person. New manager comes in, in case yes. you didn't notice at the time, Lisa. Yeah, Ronnie Dyler left. left. <laughs> and then Brendan Rogers came in. Chris he is still there did. at this point, right? Yes. And then how did things go then? Well, Chris at that point then was suffering with his back. Um, it had four epidurals in his spine, so he was he was training with the first team. Mm-hmm. But Brendan could see that he'd got you know he'd, he'd still got to get some work done, and you know he was bringing in his own players, and you know like you say, new a new shake up. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did say to Chris, "I'm not ruling you out of playing for me, yeah. but I'm I'm not guaranteeing you on the pitch week in week out." And he got a nice relationship with Brendan. Um, Brendan offered him a lot of advice, and yeah, it was nice. But Chris went in and had his back operation. He ended up having these four or five epidurals in his spine. Um, and by the end of it, his back was still not right. It'd go and you'd think that's him done again. Um, just in training. And he ended up going to Chelsea and having um, a bulge shaved away in between his vertebrae. Yeah. So he had to have quite a big operation to get that done. And he just couldn't, you know, bounce back from that as... I understand. Yeah. Was there a fear then because Celtic was in your blood, as you've said, and your kids were big, big Celtic fans, so the thought of that journey coming to an end must have been so scary for you and sad? It was so sad. When Chris left Celtic, I was gutted. I walked in and I saw Chris crying at the kitchen table and he was writing a list because he was buying everyone gifts at Lennox Town, down to the cleaner, the kitchen staff, this is it. the manager, because he'd been there for seven yeah. years. And uh, I've I've probably seen Chris cry three times in 17 years, and he was he were crying. And I was glad that he were crying, because I thought, I've, I phoned Neil Lennon up, and I said, you know, I've seen Chris, and he's really upset. And he said, it's grieving. It is a part of you mm, when you, you know. A huge part, yeah. yeah. And I think the talk was then, Neil would have liked him because he'd, he'd had a, a little spell up at Hibs on loan. Yeah. And he'd done well for Neil. Mm-hmm. Hibs were great with us. They were, you know, I, I walked in a bit like, it's not Celtic. <laughs> um, but they were great with us. They yeah. were, you know, and it was nice to see a, a, a friendly face in the players' lounge. Neil's partner were there and she made us welcome and the chief exec made us so welcome. And the kids, you know, got into it for the, for the few games. It, it was great. It's never going to be Celtic. Nothing will ever compare to Celtic. I'm glad that Chris didn't go on and play any more football after that because I think to leave at Celtic and, you know, mm. leave it on sort of the, the best days, I suppose. I don't know if Chris would feel like that. I know he didn't play a lot towards the end mm-hmm. of his career, but I think he's pretty much, you know. And how did you tell it, your kids? Because my husband ended a job with Rangers and, and that's a club that's you've just been with us for like 20 years now so that I, I felt sad he was a bit more pragmatic about it he was he was sad but new manager comes in new people in the coaching staff so we could accept that the hardest thing was telling my seven-year-old I'd be taking it? him to every game even away games he is ranger staff just like your kids with yeah. Celtic 
and that was the one person people kind of knew a new manager was coming and Jonathan might not stay on but to have to tell Junior was just heartbreaking how did you tell your kids? I can't even remember I think because it came at the end of the season and Chris had gone on the pitch and he took the kids on Brendan had given him a lovely sort of send off and mentioned both of us about what we'd contributed to the club I think it did feel like a goodbye without it feeling super, super sad for the kids. Mm. It seemed like a real ending. They've gone on the pitch every year with the dad. And I think for them it was like, so so that's it. And, you know, Chris, Chris is 35 tomorrow, as we're recording this. Chris is 35 tomorrow. So it were getting more towards the it end of Chris. Yeah. So the kids didn't seem saddened by it because mm-hmm. I think, you know, it was still, we're still going to be able to go and watch Celtic. You're still going to get your, cent- yep. your Celtic kids from Santa. <laughs> it's not done. And it weren't like, we're leaving Scotland now to go home. We knew we were going to stay That's in Glasgow. That's so lovely that you stayed. I remember reading something that you said that you'd fallen in love with Scotland and you were going to stay That I mean, yeah. that is um, that makes me feel really proud that you two wanted to make a life in our country. You know, you're kind of honorary. You're an honorary Scot now. Um so how did you decide? You just knew that you wanted to stay? I knew. So in my head, when we came up, we were moving up here for three years and then we were moving back down south again. Mm. And that's how it was going to be. And I think after I'd been up here for six months, I probably knew that I'd never want to leave. And um, Chris was the same. I just, Celtic Lovely. brought us to Scotland and the people have kept us in Scotland. I love there's no comparison for me for being in Scotland and being down in Nottingham in England. I miss family. I miss my mm-hmm. grandparents. They're all getting older. Yeah. I've lost a grandparent this week. Oh, it, I'm sorry. But it, it, it's the people that, you know, it's family that make me want to be in Nottingham. But you know what, Jean? I chuck the kids in the car after school. Five hours later, I'm back at my mum's having my dinner. Yeah, it's not too far. No. So the girls yeah. that are coming over, you know, and they, they're coming over from Australia and you think... You're not going to be home. I could go home every weekend if I wanted yeah, to. Yeah, I you're don't because I want to stay in Scotland <laughs> for the weekends. But um, I love it. I, I, there's a million things that I could list. And I find it... I, I tried. There's been a few. And I won't mention the names that have pined to go back home. Oh, it happens all the time. And I, yeah. and I say to them, you know what? Let loose and let let the supporters get round you and get in there. And I, and I think a great way for you to when you come up to Scotland and you don't know anybody and it's quite isolating, we didn't know really anybody, is get yourself into charity work. A lot of clubs have got their own charities that mm-hmm. they get in there because you're going to meet a group of people yep. and they welcome you. I mean, to get a player's wife into the charity side of things, I mean, you treat amazingly well. And I think it's great for just, you know, I know you've got all bumps and bundles, kisses <laughs> with the kids and... You know, yeah. I didn't. I didn't shy away in the house and wait for Chris to come in. I've made my own life in Scotland. You certainly have. And tell me about your work with Simba, because as much as a lot of our listeners will know Chris, they'll all know you as well. You know, and the amazing work that you've done with Simba. So tell me what the charity is about. So Simba is a charity that supports families who have lost a baby at any gestation. So it's um, early miscarriage to mm-hmm. full term or a baby loss. You know, so- soon after birth. And they asked me, they rang me up and asked if I'd be ambassador uh, four years ago. And I said, no, thank you. (laughs) Why? Because I I thought, 
I'm not ready for everybody in Scotland to know. I don't. I'd rather okay. be known as Lisa the Wag than Lisa that lost a baby. Wag is barred on this show. That's a word we don't use on the home game. But yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd rather be known as Chris's partner than the sympathetic eyes of, oh, that's that lassie that lost a baby. I and I've had mean, the sympathetic yeah. face down south and I was bored of it. But... um that I get inspired very easily. I fall in love 15 times a day with anything and everything. And the charity said, can you do us a favour? Have a look at our website, see what we do. If you change your mind, give us a call. Mm -hmm. I said, I won't change my mind, but I do promise I'll have a look. Instantly opened my laptop, true to my word, had a look at what Simba did and just thought, this charity is everything that I wished that I'd have had when Lola died. And I walked downstairs and said, Christian, use the full Sunday name. Christian, <laughs> I am going to be ambassador of a charity called Simba. And he went, of course you are, because he knows that if I ever read something and I get into it, I'm, I'm full steam ahead. And it's the best decision that I made. But don't you think it was meant to be? Simba's a Scottish charity, yeah, right? So yeah. if you never came to Celtic, you would never be involved with them. And I know that you've changed lives because you came onto my radar. One day I was sitting in the car and listening to the Jeremy Vine show and there was a couple speaking very openly and honestly about having a stillborn baby. I remember actually having to pull over because I was so touched by their story. But during their story of how they dealt with the aftermath of having a stillborn baby, they kept referring to a girl called Lisa who yep. had helped them with this and helped them with that. And that turned out to be you. You are that Lisa. So I know you are on the ground in the delivery room at times, which I found which I find astonishing. Are you really helping these families? I, I love what I do with the charity and it's that the the story that you're talking about there was Heather and two years before she had a stillborn baby, she heard a girl called Lisa <laughs> on the radio and she pulled the car in and was really upset, saddened by my story and about the cuddle cots, which is so that you can spend a longer amount of time with your baby when they've passed away. Tell me about that because I heard them talking about yeah. the, the cuddle cots on the Jeremy Vine show and I thought it was a, a lovely idea because you have said that you regretted not Deeply. holding your baby. I really, really, shoulda, woulda, coulda, I really regret not holding Lola. I should have done it, but I didn't do it at the time because I was too scared. And that's what it all boiled down to. I just thought I, I did it because I was too scared to see her. And Chris did it. Chris didn't see her because he said, what if I think she's sleeping and I can't wake her up? Oh. And that's why we didn't. And we were very, very young and, you know, turned everyone away. F f you know, we just tried to deal with it together. Mm -hmm. Um this is really sad to say, but when I started going around the hospitals in Scotland, I realised a little bit more about what happens when your baby passes away. And I can say now this doesn't happen anymore, but your baby would get taken away and cooled down in pretty much what looked like a large fridge. And you just don't want to think it of is, the yeah, energy it's, a, it's, you know, a, a cold place to stop the, your baby from mm. decomposing. And then the baby comes back out, gets Ugh. to spend longer with mum. And... That to me, I thought that is it's the not saddest a place thing for in the world. A baby. Yeah. yeah. And so what what we've got now is a cuddle cot, and it's a lovely name for basically the same sort of crib as what you'd get when you've had a, a baby that's alive, and it's got a cold mattress that runs underneath, and all that does is the same process mm -hmm. of what was happening to the babies that were getting taken away, yeah. and it means that baby stays in the same room as you, and we provide 
a private room in the hospital as much as what we can do. Mm-hmm. And you've got your own kitchen, you've got your own toilet set up, you've got your cuddle cot, um, a memory making box and everything that you need around you so that you don't need to walk onto a ward and see any other mums. I mean, that just sounds life-changing. Yeah. A small thing. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine just makes that process that tiny, tiny bit easier. For just a little bit more comfortable, and it also means that you're not walking away with the regrets and you're getting to spend as long as, as really, you know, p- parents have had... Heather had five days in the hospital, and I know that some listeners now are going... Oh, by days. I think that time you know, must be but, so every second yeah, of that must be so when precious. That, when that time's gone, it's gone and mm. you've got all these lovely photographs and I encourage families to go in and take photographs. And um funnily enough, so this is this is fresh for your ears this week. I've sat down now as you know, doing my modelling in Scotland, my film side, my charity side and all the other bits in between that I do. And I've sat down now, Jax is back at school, and said, Chris, I've been thinking now for a couple of years what I want to be doing full-time. Mm-hmm. And I think he thought I was going to say the film side of things and the TV, because I do enjoy the TV side. But I'm going to train to be a doula, and I'm going to go... What does that mean? So a, a birthing partner, and I'm, I'm going to do this. Unfortunately, I'm not able to do it through the charity because they'd have to train lots of us up at the same time, mm-hmm. and there's not a segment of funding for that. But what I'm going to do, Jean, is I'm going to take myself through the courses that I need to do. And I want to be the person that when somebody's lost a baby, they can pick the phone up, they can get through to me. And if I am available at that time of their lives, Mm -hmm. I can go in, support them through the delivery when the baby's died. I'll help arrange a funeral, do the memory making and the photographs and then do some um, support after that as well there's just no better person because you've been through it but i have to ask you how how can you take on that grief again because you've been through it you've lived in it you've stood in it to be around those people in those moments where they're really in the darkest place you're ever going to be in your life how can you put yourself through that again um i suppose because for me it was 10 years ago and i've got my three children that's here now and and happy and healthy and when I walked into Heather, when she was, I actually thought I was just going in to talk to this lady that's baby had died. And I walked into a lady who was on gas and air delivering a baby. And instantly, I could relate mm. to everything that she was going through. Of and course. I sat there and I looked at her dad, uh, the, the baby's dad, Lewis, and he was so upset. And I, I did think at the time, I don't know whether this is going to affect me. We're going to see how, how I go with it. Yeah. But I knew that I wanted to be there for them. And when their baby was born, that was the first baby that I'd ever seen that had passed away. It's now not the first baby that I've seen, and I've seen um, a few since. And I walked away, and I knew, Jean, that I'd made a massive difference. And the gratitude of afterwards them saying, I am so appreciative that you were there. And there's something that when you've been through it, you look at that family, they are at their most vulnerable point, and I know that... I am the best person for the job. And I say that like it's a big-headed thing, but it's the only thing that I've ever done in my life that I think there's no better person than me that can do this. I can make a massive difference. Will it? Will that job pay as much as making the movies? No. no. Does it matter? No. No. It's, it's going to fulfil me in a way that I think 
I could talk about it all day. Oh, but I'm you happy get the for gist. you. I can see you when you're talking it's, about it's, it. How passionate you are. It's what I are. should be doing. Yeah. Chris just said, "Well, maybe go in and do a bit more voluntary because I don't want it to take your sparkle away because you're going to be seeing babies mm. that's passed away every week." And I said. It won't take my sparkle away because there's nothing more precious for me when I'm there and a baby's there that's passed away and helping families share that moment. I think it's your mission in life. I really do out of something horrific, unimaginably sad. You are doing something positive. Tell me the title of that job again. What would it be? I mean, doula is... Doula, I've never heard that before. Yeah, I, I want... I'm going to come up with my own little bit of something. <laughs> Alisa Haig twist lab- on it. The Labour of Love, sort of, a, <laughs> which is the name of the documentary. And I thought Labour of Love is exactly what it is when you're delivering a baby that's that's passed. That's exactly what you're doing. Yeah, so I don't know up. what the title is to that. I'm sure a lot of people will think it's, you know, a really depressing sort of job. But for me, it'll be very, very fulfilling. I think it will be. And we, we're going to run out of time soon, but I want to get to your documentary because I want everybody to see it. Tell me what it's about and when it's on. So it's on for Baby Loss Awareness Week, which is the middle of October. Um, it's called Labour of Love, and we got approached to do this about a year ago. Me, Chris, and the kids are all involved. Lovely. Um, April speaks about, which I was so proud of, realising how much she actually knew. Um, April's eight. She spoke about losing a sibling and now you know so you've always spoke to them about the fact they have an older sister and and she's in heaven now and yeah and they speak very openly if I dare say to anybody just you know to the bus driver how many kids have you got and I say three they quickly correct me and say we've had four um but yeah it's called labor of love the people that's seen it the main guys that's produced it have said that it is so hard-hitting it's so amazing and informative and what 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 my mission is is to make baby loss not a taboo anymore and get people that are losing a baby in today's world mm-hmm. and people that lost a baby 60 years ago yes. to be able to speak about it because I love people coming up to me in the street and telling me all about the babies that's passed away because I feel like I'm that trustable person. Yeah, they can get it. Hopefully that documentary is going to really reach a lot of people and um, make baby loss not a taboo anymore. When's it on? Uh I don't know the exact date. It's okay. BBC Alba as well. So we're hoping there might be there's some uh, Gaelic speaking in it. Maybe there's going to be something where we can get it out there as well that's, mm-hmm. that's just in Scotland. But um, it's going to be middle of October. Oh, you talk about it and you make it so accessible. You take away the taboo. So that's I think that's going to speak to a lot of people and I'll be watching it. And it sounds like this is the new chapter of your life. Let's talk about the next chapter of Christian, as you <laughs> called him. Christian. I assumed he'd be called Christopher. Um, what's the next chapter for him? Because that does impact you, you know, I think uh, as a partner, a wife, as a footballer, when they stop playing, there's a danger zone oh, that yeah. you can go into. That's when all kind of things that can happen, divorce, gambling, boredom, overeating, lots of stuff can happen so I, I sort of call that the danger zone and we, we sort of skipped it because Jonathan took a year out when he stopped playing and I was had just had a baby so yeah. he jumped into fatherhood yeah. like a job and, and that was great and then when he came out of it he got straight into coaching so how are you dealing with the danger zone just now? We're out the danger zone Oh good because Chris now is like you say he's pundit for Sky Sports He's got a show for Sky Sports, SPFL Matters. He's got a, a section on the radio on a Thursday night that he does, and he does a column. But there was the grey area of, will Chris go and have another couple of years footballing, maybe at Hibs? Mm-hmm. Will he not? And I know what you mean by the danger zone. And I feel 
sorry for the guys that because it doesn't matter what money you've got in the bank it doesn't matter how happy the home life is it's a void massive football void. was chris's first love that came before me and his children it is his Same. first love and when that goes i mean while he was upset he said to me you know i'm being a professional footballer was the dream since I was about three. I'm now 34 and I've got to find a new dream. And I thought, you couldn't... That is so right. Scary. Chris has still got to put all of his energy into something. He won't be happy just floating about. I could just float about and do bits and Oh, I, I don't think so, <laughs> no. But um, I, I worry for the people. Robbie Savage did a really good interview recently and he really spoke about... Now, Robbie Savage is financially comfortable mm -hmm. and he's got properties and he's done really well in his career. But he said, what was the point in getting out of bed in the morning? And I said to Chris, you should really watch that, you know, because I think it's good for them to see that other footballers have struggled with the, what the what the heck do I do next? Yeah. Um, I think football clubs could do a bit more, Jean, to be fair. Yeah, All I think football th clubs in going, yep. go and have a chat to this person here because... You go from being, you know, high as a kite playing football and some of these guys, we know that gambling is quite rife mm -hmm. in a dressing room um, and the ones that haven't been too clever with the, with the finances, they could be walking out of there with nothing. Chris has walked out where he's financially comfortable, he's got a family, everyone's happy and healthy and he's still sort of struggled in those middle few months of who am I, what am I going to do next? Um, there's no surprising. It's not a case of footballers and their partners get divorced because they're not playing football anymore and the big money's not coming no, in anymore. No, it's nothing to do it's with It's because that. there's big, big changes that happen in the home life. Yeah, and, and a lot of depression can seep in as well. So it's great to hear that Chris sort of threw himself into the media and surprising because you've said he's quiet and I know he's really eloquent and articulate and likeable voluntarily. Did that surprise you? Well, Chris is you know, quiet in the house because I don't let him speak. I've not heard him speak oh, since Oh, I can't imagine that, Lisa. I can't imagine it. So Chris is <laughs> your, your proper gentleman sort of bloke. He's, you know, I can't call Chris in any way. He's fab. But then I see him on a football pitch and he's getting a bit rowdy and a few words are coming out and it always seemed to be that me and my granddad would be watching him on the telly as a few choice words have come out of his mouth and he's a different guy on the football pitch. He is Chris Commons on a football pitch. Mm -hmm. He's... Christian when he's at home and he is two different people so uh, mm, no it didn't surprise me because he says what he thinks he's got mm -hmm. no filter he's doing well at, at saying exactly what he thinks it might not always be what everybody wants to hear but that's Chris for you and he's enjoying the media side of it good I'm glad to hear it I'm always glad to hear about other couples who are, find their way after football you know that whether that be the wife or the husband and you seem like a really together couple you seem like a really happy person which is lovely and thank you so much it's been amazing to have you as my first guest and I wanted you because I follow you on social media and you just look fun and carefree happy <laughs> honest when you're annoyed you say you're annoyed you know when you're happy you tell everyone and there's a real honesty about you and I think the listeners are going to love you so thank you for being my first guest on the home game thank you Jean. thank you